yeah, I mean, a, a video is the fastest, quickest, cheapest way to build trust. When people see you on a video, they either trust you or they don't trust you. They like you or they don't like you. So I would say if you haven't started with video marketing, absolutely 100%, 2021, you've got to start, and especially with the short video form, less than 60 seconds is the way. You're listening to Ecomonics, a Debutify podcast, your resource for one-of-a-kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age. This is Joseph. I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. Uzir Karawala talks about what you can do to be viewed in the best light by Google. Between his company's years of experience and Google certification, working with them means working with the best. Uzir and I talk about what it was like adapting to this industry early on and what it's going to take to continue to adapt going forward. Uzir is uniquely positioned as a forerunner in the video ad game, and I strongly recommend listening to his methods or, and you know what, getting him in your corner is not such a bad idea either. Uzir Karawala. Thank you. It's really good to have you here on Ecomonics. Uh, we're talking to you in the UK right now, and I know it's late, but uh, I want to thank you for, for being here and for being dedicated to your craft. I looked into what you're up to, and you've been around for uh, quite a while. Your, your, your business is set up in 2002, but as good as I might be able to tell the story, I definitely want to hear uh, your telling of the story instead. So let's, let's get into this. Uh, who are you and what do you do? Thank you very much, Joseph, and lovely to meet you, and uh, thank you for the invite. Um, yes, um, so I'm based in the UK. Uh, we are a, a full-service digital marketing agency where we can take businesses of um, any shape and size from concept to campaign. What I mean by that is with my background uh, as a photographer, when we started back in 2002, the internet was just evolving and coming along. There was no Google as such. So our main focus was obviously photography. As internet came up, then we started getting uh, photos for product shots, headshots. Um, then video came along. Our business evolved quite rapidly. And we had to adapt with the changing times because um, I used to be an evangelist for Nikon. And I knew the changes, the technolo technological changes coming through. And if we didn't evolve, we are going to die. And hence, we thought, okay, we've got to move on with the times. And one day, one of our clients said, well, you're doing our photos and videos. Why don't you do our website? On a website, as you know, that the two most important things are photos and videos. If you've got good quality photos and videos, your website is going to look really good. And we thought, yeah, why not? So we started doing web design. And then in 2009, I'm not sure whether you remember the Doom and Gloom and the Lehman Brothers uh, crash. The, the recession started. As a matter of fact, I do remember. Um, if I can tell you a very brief story about my own perspective on that. That was when I just started getting into podcasting. And I was using a free podcasting hosting service. There was like a whole bunch of different pod terms because they were all like pod bean or pod sprout or, or, or pod pod or something like that. And we were notified that due to the recession that they had to shut down the business. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'm, in, I'm in college in Canada and we we're all having a laugh because of all the people to be affected by the recession in Canada, it was me and my podcasting. <laughs> so 
our traditional ways of advertising back then, you know, magazines, newspapers, trade shows were getting expensive and not working. And I came across Google Ads and I thought, what's this? You know, and I started dabbling with it and I put up some campaign without knowing much how to set up and what to do. And we started to get <laughs> traffic and leads and so on. And before you know it, we were running campaigns for ourselves and generating loads and loads of work from it. And I don't know how much you know about the South Asian culture, that if somebody is doing something, they're going to latch on to you and say, oh, can you run my campaigns? Or can you get me leads? Or can you s- sell my stuff on there? And I don't mind helping out as much as I possibly can, but then it started to affect our work. Whereas all day long, I was like running campaigns for other people. And I'm thinking, where's my day going? So then I knew back then that there is a niche, there is a demand for this. So we looked into it and I came across uh, the Google Partner Program where you have to qualify, you have to go through certain exams and and then you have to perform uh, as a minimum level of for Google's best practices, spend a minimum amount of uh, money, client money on ads, and then you get the certification. So that's why when I said from concept to campaign, meaning images, videos, websites, pretty much everything, and then obviously Google Ads. So we can we can offer the whole whole uh, gambit of uh, services. And as well, you have the resources and the expertise to continue to adapt to whatever new changes are, are taking place in media and in advertising. Have you guys, uh, by any chance, have been putting your ears to the ground and notice anything new coming down the way, like are VR headsets going to suddenly become uh, household items? The thing which I have been uh, preaching for the last two, three years is video marketing. Pretty certain you came across me because of one of my videos on YouTube or on the internet. And this is how most of our clients find, uh, find us. We don't go out cold calling, knocking on doors, um, or approaching clients, most of these leads which come through to us is through our uh, videos or through our YouTube channel, which is pretty much 95% of our lead generation is through there. And all we do is we keep putting up content, uh, video content um, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's been it's been brought up in previous episodes I, and I think one of the, the the main components to why video is like the standard is because it's the closest parallel to our own experience. Even something as simple as talking to people in the store or just interacting with my family, interacting with my friends, video is the format that most, so far anyways, I joke about VR, but you know, it's putting on a headset and getting, getting immersed in a completely different 3D environment. It is the experience that our subconscious is having the easiest time processing information for. Yeah, I mean, a video is the fastest, quickest, cheapest way to build trust. When people see you on a video, they either trust you or they don't trust you. They like you Mm -hmm. or they don't like you. Well, not everybody will like someone. Lots of people may not like my videos, don't like me or whatever. But a lot of people appreciate the content which I put up and those are the people who I'm um, targeting. So I would say if you haven't started with video marketing, absolutely 100%. 2021, you've got to start, and especially with the short video forms. 
less than 60 seconds mm. is the way. So going back to your question about what's the latest and the greatest coming along, the 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 shorts because with because of TikTok, mm-hmm. the short format video, the vertical video, less than sixty seconds long, is what every platform is pushing out now. You know, Instagram has got Reels, YouTube has got Shorts, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook—they're all pushing up the short format um, video. You're right. Yeah, I didn't actually uh, put that together, but between the, the, on Twitter, for instance, they just integrated stories into it. Now, I have to say, me personally, I've been a, I've been a Twitter user since I don't know, like two thousand. I was about to say two thousand nine, but that can't be right. It's been a while. But, uh, but the point is, is that I'm so used to Twitter being the format that it is. I think I'm not watching the the Twitter stories almost out of protest to the point where I don't want to suddenly have a different view of. That's not what I come to Twitter for. Now, other other people they will. As they join onto Twitter, and I don't think they have that um, that habit formed, and that for them this is now going to be the new way for them to form those habits. Because I did notice with Instagram, I started using Instagram, and then it didn't take very long at all before stories were then implemented. But because my habit hadn't formed, I got used to starting to look at stories. So it's weird. Now I go to Instagram, the photo app, to to just watch the videos. And then the second observation, and and again, this is something that I did not put together, but in a way, the video technology has um, come full circle. Because, and I'm talking about like way back when video projectors were just coming out and the, the, the first footage of the train coming towards the screen and everybody runs for it because they thought they were actually going to get run over. If people remember, or if they have to look it up, the most early video content was actually quite short as well, mostly due to limitations. They, they didn't have much time. They didn't have much uh, film to actually shoot these things on. So people would just watch very, very brief videos. So it's it's interesting to see that with the advancement of the technology, the format has actually returned to its starting point. Yeah, and another example, a good example I can give you is that of a radio station. Although radio is just an audio uh, form, mm-hmm. they have these multiple cameras within the studio and they are live streaming. They're creating video content. They're creating you know mini interviews of the person who is being interviewed on the radio and creating video out of the audio content and repurposing it. Yeah, and it's also a conversation that... Um... Uh, we're having to hear too, because up till now, uh, it's been an audio podcast and we're seeing what's going to change in 2021, which by the way, will be when this uh, episode airs because we uh, booked these quite in advance. I mean, there are still some elements to audio specific content that are advantageous because there are points in time where people are not going to be looking at a video. Like they're going to be in the car or they're doing chores um, or they're exercising, they're on the treadmill. Well, I guess some people, they watch screens on the treadmill, but if someone, someone's jogging, they're not going to put a, a camera in front of them. So because audio will always have a niche, there is incentive to then make sure that niche is maximized. Um, and one example I tend to point to is somebody like a show like Radiolab, where they really take their time and they're meticulous about the presentation because they know if someone's going to listen, they have to maximize that. There's, there's a lot of things I want to ask you, just because uh, your, your experience is so vast. And one of the things that I'm personally curious about uh, and by the way, sorry, I guess I should give you a chance if you wanted to respond to what I said about the audio. I would be curious to hear your take on it first. No, it's absolutely because, you know, you think if when someone has got a website and a blog, you've got to put all these three formats on it because all you want to think about is the landing page experience. So you've got text, you've got images, video, audio, PDFs, 
put in as much pieces of uh, content on your blog, Google will love you. They will say, these guys are doing the right thing. They're putting every piece of content. So if somebody likes videos, they'll watch video. If somebody wants to listen, they can listen. If somebody wants to uh, re- see an infographic, they can, or you can um, add text. Mm-hmm. So, and transcribing the audio and the videos into text format is again, is repurposing the content into text format, which is all good for your SEO. Okay, so here, here is a question that I uh, wanted to ask. Just um, this is like a brief uh, uh, history tale because I think a lot of our listeners coming up, they've entered the internet while the internet, I think, found its legs uh, and their foundations, and social media was implemented, and uh, people uh, relatively un- like people understand the structure of the internet as it is before us. And when you said your your business opened in two thousand two. I, I remember that was when I just started getting onto the internet. And like one of the first things that I did was to try to set up a GeoCities website, which actually might still be up. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and my and my, my Zanga blog was a hit between me and my uh, my seven friends, all of whom also set up Zanga blogs. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit about like your first uh, uh, encounter with the internet and what impressions did it leave? And um, what did you think? what it was going to be for you did you think it was going to have professional application or did you think it was just like this quirky hobby thing because that's kind of what it is for me Uh, for me it was i guess like the first major thing i discovered was like a nintendo community website so that i could talk to other nintendo fans that was like the thing for me it just seemed like oh this little thing to augment um my life's preferences to talk about things i can't talk about in school i mean when we started our website, the days were where you had to dial in. It wasn't like a broadband or Wi-Fi. You just connect. You had this little modem and it will dial, dial out to the internet and it will take ages to connect. And then it's going to download all your emails and stuff. And people couldn't use the phone either, by the way. It was on the one phone line. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, we used to do a lot of uh, equestrian photography in those days. We used to cover about 300 horseshoes, mounted games, uh, show jumping, dressage, cross country, you name it, we've shot them. The problem was we, all these shows used to happen on the weekend and we couldn't be in two places at the same time. So we had a team of photographers and then we would go there on the shows and print on site. But the disadvantage was we used to have, got to have multiple equipment and lots of uh, logistics problems and all that. So we were one of the first ones to go online with a little website. And then uh, an American company approached me and he goes, oh, you can sell your photos online. I said, really? He goes, yeah, you can just upload all your photos and then give your web address to people and then they can buy online. Let's try it, no problem. So we started selling online. And I remember one day a phone call came through and the lady told me, oh, thank you so much. I said, for what? Oh, you put your our photos on the site. All the family went to the public library and we had a great day out to look at our photos and order online. It was very exciting. <laughs> and I'll never forget that. that they, they had to go to a public library because there was no internet in the, in the area. And that's when I knew that this is something big. And then we very quickly had about eight to 10 photographers every weekend. We'll send a couple to one show, another one, uh, one to a smaller show and so on. 
And all we did was used to hand out our little cards with the website address on it. And people would love to buy it because such a novelty and a new thing that we were getting sales. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, the amount of envelopes we used to post, the postman, at the, uh, the guy at the post office used to say, what do you guys sell? What are you posting? Like we would have hundreds and hundreds of, you know, uh, photographs with the do not band um, envelopes. Mm. And in, in crates, we used to take them. Like we will have multiple cl- uh, crates. And that's how popular it was. And we used to, that's how we started with our online presence. And we have continued that um, activity because online is the way forward. And right now, especially with this lockdown, there's no other way to reach out to your clients. You can't go and f- see them physically. I have one other um, uh, history question for you, and then we'll, we'll we'll move on to some of the stuff regarding Google Ads and YouTube and your your, your expertise that you're officially recognized by. Uh, but one other thing I wanted to hear about historically was when you started to see video implemented online, because um, that was a hurdle for the internet. That's video does take a lot more uh, resources than images, and images take more resources than text. So there was a process before video wasn't just available, but it could be disseminated in a way that was pleasing to the eye. And and I'll just give you my experience. Like the first videos that I had seen, again, this is promotional. I'm I'm like 13 years old, right? All I think about is Nintendo. And all the videos that I would see were these like 240 by 380 QuickTime videos that were blurry. Um it it, it looked it looked like um and I mean it was a Canadian artist, a group of seven. If somebody like took like a, a an image and then just like well, actually, that's a poor way to characterize the group of seven. The point is, it was not clear. Yeah, it wasn't crisp. Um, so, uh, how about you? When did uh, when did you start spotting a video? Where where was it first to show up on uh, from from your perspective? So, I first came across a video on a DSLR camera. I think it was two thousand and ten or eleven, something like that. And one day I had this Nikon camera and it was video on it. And I'm wondering, why the hell have to put video on there? It's a camera. We don't need video. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized that, yes, it is It is going to be big. Because before you knew it, the iPhone came out. And obviously on the first iPhone, the video wasn't there. I think it was on the second or the third version. I can't remember video started coming in and then YouTube was um, picking up and gathering pace. That's when I knew that, yes, video is here to here to stay. So so this next question is going to be about your studio. And I'm going to use this one to transition from the history into uh, what we're up to today. I think this would be a perfect way to do it. So you, you started your, your studio in 2002. And just to make sure that I'm understanding everything, it started as just a photography studio and then over time it, you were uh, uh, cognizant enough to identify what were the major changes and you capitalized on them so what did it take to get your digital studio up and running at that time like how far along were you in your career that you could afford that investment and then uh, second to this is how it evolved over time and finally um, what what is the state of the art digital studio have to stay in the competition to this day? What's in your studio right here, right now? I mean, if we talk about the present, 
you don't need to have $10,000, $20,000 worth of kit. The best video is in your pocket, which is your phone. And you can do wonderful stuff as long as the audio quality is fairly decent. You just need a, like a $10, $15 mic, clip it on uh, to your uh, top or shirt, mm-hmm. and you're good to go. And the other thing is a little bit of good lighting. And you don't need, you, you see, what you need to understand is you are not trying to create a Hollywood blockbuster. We are trying to create content, be it to educate or entertain. And as long as people can see you and it's not you know, out of focus and the lighting is semi-decent, and I'm not talking about you know, Hollywood-style lighting either, and decent audio, your content needs to be good quality. In fact, great quality. And people don't look look at the quality of the video quality as such. As long as they're enjoying it, they're going to consume the video content. Yeah, I, I could speak to that. One of uh, the most regular YouTube creators that I watch, he, well, he certainly doesn't shoot in 4K. And he certainly doesn't have a, um, a, a state-of-the-art uh, ribbon microphone. He said that he had a, like a, a, a a Yeti or one of those yeah. um, blue ones, but the way it's positioned is that he sits pretty far away from it. And so I can hear the echo of the room, but the key is, is that his content is compelling yeah. and the algorithm knows that I like watching him for breakfast. So the, with the assistance of the algorithm, um, it's become like a ritual for me to, to sit and watch him while I'm having my oatmeal or my, my peanut butter toast on the days where I'm lazy, which are many days. Next one I want to ask is, it says on your profile that uh, you're a YouTube certified professional, as you mentioned as well. It also says that you're a, uh, as you mentioned as well, for your, that you're a recognized authority. And there's four fields here. And I let you, I want you to uh, just break down these uh, for us. And I remind our audience that, as always, you know, we do our best to get as much as you can in an hour. But, it, you know, you have much more time um, in your in your day to sink your teeth into the content that our, our guests here are creating. So with that out of the way, um, the four fields uh, that your recognized authority are, are content ownership, asset monetization, channel growth, and content strategy. I think everyone has at least some familiarity with these, but I would like to hear um, from your perspective, your take on these and um, how each one are important. And if there's anything specific about them that people don't normally know that you've had to tell people about, this would also be uh, a good chance to let us know about those as well. Sure. I mean, so those are kind of like the technical stuff which we need to go through when we uh, have to sit through the YouTube certified exams. We need to understand what each uh, each one means. So things like the monetization, I want to keep it in simple English rather than going into the techie bit, which will become... You're doing me a favor, yes. Thank you. So things like um, mon- monetization is how do you earn money by putting up content? So to do that, you got to have a thousand hours, a thousand, beg your pardon, thousand subscribers and 4,000 watch time hours on your channel. And then uh, Google is going to, now Google owns YouTube, obviously. Um, YouTube or Google will uh, enable your channel or your videos which will allow other content creators to put their video as an ad. So you know the skip ads which 
which pop up on. Oh, I've I've never skipped an ad in my life. I've I've never seen that before. So those are the ones which which pop up, and this is how a part of that revenue sharing is with the with the content or the channel owner. With regards to the ownership, you know you need to be mindful of the copyright. Don't infringe. It's very it's a very serious and it's a criminal offense to just copy somebody's content. If you are creating content, make it your own content. If you are using music. Make sure that you've got the license for it. If you are using some other additional video footage as part of your video, you can't take a clip from a Disney movie or any other movies or any other channel and put it on as part of your um, of your video. So you need to be very mindful of that because uh, copyright claim is a serious um, a serious thing on YouTube, and it can uh, well three strikes and you're out. Uh, from the monetization, they give you three three strikes. So you be very careful that you don't get those strikes. So one thing that I see, and this is very, this is popular as a, a in, in meme culture, where I will see uh, YouTube videos, they'll very briefly use a, um, a, a meme, or they'll very briefly refer to, say, like a, a, a scene involving Matthew McConaughey. Now, has, have, have content creators, and by the way, we're not, of formally giving anybody a, like not telling people to you know take other people's content but have you seen that there is a threshold that people have to cross where if people just use a copyrighted content for a couple of seconds that they're okay or is it this is a hard rule you just don't bother it's not a, no it's not a, don't, okay. don't go there and the algorithms will pick it up even if you use a copyrighted music it will pick it up that you are using somebody's licensed music. And especially Facebook also is pretty hot on that in some of the videos which you are being monetized. Because what YouTube and all these uh, platforms don't want is you making money out of somebody else's content. It's kind of like a piracy. You know, you're copying, you're ripping somebody off and trying to make money. So I would never um, say even tiny bit or little bit don't do it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's good to, um, I, I think if anybody in their mind was like 99% versus a hundred, it's good to make sure that we hit uh 100%. Um, the other thing that you brought up too, about the ads that are skipped and I, I, I say jokingly, but I have skipped plenty of ads, uh, but there are also ones that are unskippable as well. Uh, and they go for about six seconds. And, and this is, this is cool too, because earlier we, we established the idea that videos are getting very short. So I think content creators are thinking I have six seconds where uh, unless they, you know, they take their headphones off and they look away for six seconds out of protest, I've got their attention for six seconds on the, on the backend side, how do content creators decide that, or how are they able to set up the unskippable ads versus the skippable ones? And is there a cost difference between those two? Yeah. So the skippable ones are usually called the in-stream video ads and the skippable also oh, the non-skippable ones are called the bumper ads so when you set up a campaign through your google ads account so again you you set up your video ads through google ads with just one account and then you run up your campaigns from there the bumper ads are priced per thousand views that means per thousand times or impressions so it could be $10, $20, $30, depends how much you are bidding. 
the end stream is CPV, which is cost per view. Every time someone, now this is where YouTube differentiates a lot uh, from Facebook. On YouTube, on average, a, a session per day is around 40 minutes of content being consumed on average by people visiting YouTube. So a view is classified as someone continues to watch your video ad for a minimum of 30 seconds or until the ad finishes or the video finishes, whichever is the first. So if, the if that skippable ad pops up on your screen and you continue to watch it and you skip after 27 seconds, the advertiser has got 27 seconds worth of free branding and free app. Ah. Now, huh. it's kind of like you a magazine telling you, look, if we don't give you brand awareness or eyeballs on your ad or drive traffic through to your website, don't pay us. They can't do that. Magazines, newspapers, or any kind of other format like radio stations, whereas over here, you can. So if you want people to watch it, because that's the whole idea of your ad. But if they're skipping after five seconds, that means either your targeting is not good or the the hook is not there in the first five seconds to grab somebody's attention. So you need to make sure that more people view your ad. Obviously, it will cost you, but that's the whole idea. So this is why 30 seconds is a long time to... Because you have interrupted someone's pattern. You went to YouTube to watch a cooking, a football, or a golfing video, and all of a sudden this ad popped up before video or during the video, interrupted your viewing pattern, just like on TV. When we are watching a movie or a drama or something and ads pop up. But on TV, unfortunately, we can't skip it. Whereas on YouTube, you have the luxury of skipping it. Even if you skip it, five seconds, free branding. Mm -hmm. You know, it's been... Probably at least a year, might have been even two years by this point for me since I've watched television complete with ads. It's even got to the point where I'll pull up, say, YouTube and I will watch that on TV as just to kind of mimic the ritual I used to have. And one of the things about television shows is that the symbiosis between the show and the advertisement are, um, it's, I think it's much more ingrained than uh, the way it is here. But you you will see this in some YouTube videos, which I'll get into in a second. So my my point is, let's just take an episode of The Simpsons. The way it's written, they know in advance where the commercial breaks are going to be. So that is when they do the act breaks. And they rely on hooks within the story to keep the audience from, at the very least, not going to watch another show and staying there. They want people to, at the very least, come back after the commercials. Now, people get up. And this is, I guess this has always been the problem with advertising um, pretty much up until what we're talking about today, which is whether it's a billboard, a magazine, or TV, there is no way to know whether or not the person was paying attention and if they were paying attention, if they care. So what you're saying right now about uh, Google ads, if, if it's a 30-second ad and I skip it at 25 seconds, they're basically getting a refund. They can just, they can just try again. So that I have to tell you, that's massive. I... I, I did not know that one bit. Yeah, now true. I feel a little bit better about all the times I skipped because I I watch quite a bit of YouTube, um, at least until all my uh, all my favorite creators get uh, get sent packing, and then I'm going to end up on uh, on BitChute or something. But until then, it is really difficult to keep someone's attention 
And a lot of that just has to do with how much control we have at our computers. I have a mouse. I have a lot of do a lot of things I can do with my mouse. A lot of things I can do with my keyboard. So for me, I... I, I can't really think of the last time that I sat and watched an ad for 30 minutes because I was hooked. I, I just, so all, all of this is to say, it is great to hear that the Google ads is really on the side of the advertisers. They understand how difficult it is to really reach people and the content creators, they just want to focus on making the content and really trying to come up with an ad that really connects with people and, and gets them hooked for, uh, for the 30 seconds, however long they go. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are four people or four parties. We've got the viewer, we've got the advertiser, uh, we've got Google. It needs to be a fine balance between Google is in the uh, business of making money. They want clicks and they they want views without making kind of like uh, distracting from the viewer, getting, you know, the viewers getting cheesed off every two minutes. There's an ad popping up which will be annoying. And then they're going to switch off and go to some other uh, networks or platforms. So it's a fine balance because with the skip button, skip ad button, that gives the viewer the total control. You don't want to see the ad, skip it. And you carry on. And five seconds is not a huge amount of time. You you either want to watch it or you don't want to watch it. Yeah, and, and one thing too is that the skip button, like, and just to make sure that you mention it, you can't skip for the first five seconds. So at the very least that the the audience does have to commit five seconds to it before they can move on to it. And then the other point that, that I wanted to make too is that I am noticing um, content creators. I think I've seen this in the last year, but it could have been going on longer than this where once they've made their content, they do have an idea where they want to insert their ads. Like, and now for our uh, number one favorite episode of Cobra Kai, and then it just cuts to an ad. I'm like, okay, that wasn't a coincidence. They knew what they were doing. Yeah, you. I mean, the advertisers, especially in Google Ads, have got a variety of ways to target your audience. And it's amazing what you can target and how accurately you can target. So um, I guess uh, from across the, the the clients that you've worked with, as well as uh, your own experience, can can you think of any ads in particular that, uh, got good response and managed to hold people's attention, um, whether it's specifically of, of an industry or if it was a product. Like, are there any standard examples of ads that actually uh, managed to, you know, consistently work? Yeah. So an interesting one is for a local client of ours. Uh, it's a sixty-year-old company, so they've been around for a long time, and we gave them this uh, proposal of taking on on video. Peter, who is, I believe he's 85, he instantly said, yeah, let's do it. And we created a series of videos of meet the team of the staff members, 15-second, 30-second videos, very short clips. And then once we created these and we put them up on YouTube or Facebook and all that, then there was a little mini competition going on between the each one of the staff members as to who's going to who's getting the most likes, comments, shares, etc., and the views. And what was happening is they were promoting the company video because they were featured in that video. So they were sharing it with their friends and family and their network. And it just kept on going wider and wider and kind of like viral. So that was a great exercise in brand building. And also, 
it builds the trust with your audience that this company is uh, promoting, not promoting the staff, but showcasing the staff members as to who they are, what they do, to get them um, to know them a little bit more better. Did the competition by any chance have a prize? No, it was a healthy competition. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure between them they might be having some. Yeah, I was just wondering about like the the incentive structure for like you know if somebody was getting a promotion at the end of it, like oh I'm going to go onto my Facebook, I'm going to get all my family and friends on it. So uh, the next couple of questions that I have uh, uh, chambered for you are uh, are also Google Ads related, and what I did was. I just try to keep in mind of the different subjects that I've talked to other guests about regarding Google Ads. I just want to make sure I don't ask everybody the same uh, question over and over. So I looked through your content. I just tried to find some stuff a little more specific that I've seen on your content that I haven't seen on other people. One of the most uh, recent posts, um, at least as of this recording, is smart bidding. And um, on your thumbnail, you may or may not have used an image of an Android uh, I couldn't figure out where the Android was from. I was thinking it was the Terminator Android or the iRobot. Terminator. <laughs> Terminator. Okay. 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 That wasn't my first guess. My first guess was iRobot. But anyways, um, so what's going on here with smart bidding? What do we What do we know about it so far? So smart bidding has been around for the last few years. It's getting better and better by the day to the point that there's no way in the world a human can beat the machine just like in the Terminator movies. It is fascinating how it works. It's taking away all the control, all the expertise, experience from the human, myself, and lots of thousands of other professionals who have really learned Google Ads. And we see somebody switching on these um, smart bidding campaigns. It doesn't run straight right off the bat, but it needs to be fed the right data Once the machine knows who you are looking for, what you want out of it, it is kind of like unstoppable. It will just keep on getting you the results, the conversions, the sales, the leads, and so on. I dread to think what's going to be coming around in the next year, two years or so, because Google Ads is evolving at such a rapid pace that I don't know whether I'll be in a job or not. It's a, it's a bit to process, especially because I'm a fan of the Terminator series and I'm drawing parallels in my mind with what's true about what you're saying versus what's true about Terminators. Um, one of them is that in the first, I can't believe, okay, I can't believe I'm doing this. Okay, so in the first Terminator movie, a human does take down the Terminator, but it took so many resources to, to bring the machine down. Um, it costs, so spoiler, spoiler alert, Give people a second to stop and go watch the Terminator series. <laughs> Come back. Okay. The human resistance fighter they sent back in time to stop the Terminator, he he perishes. And then Sarah Connor, she finishes it off, but she had to undergo such an evolution of her character in order to be able to do it. At first, at the beginning of it, she's a meek waitress. And at the end, okay, now you see she's the mother of the resistance uh, leader, John Connor. So the, 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 the effort that it took to bring one down... Mm is the parallel that I'm drawing with the effort it would yeah. take to meet um, and then surpass the, um, the, the potency of uh, this AI. Then you get to Terminator 2, and they said, well, we should really just get one of these machines on our side. And so I think that's where uh, we're, we're going with this, is that, well, you know, we, we, we harness this and we use our machine versus their machines. 
I, and I think to, to some degree, and, and I'm hoping I'm right about this next year, but I think you always do need some sort of human to uh, oversee things. Um, previously, I was doing some research on um, AI copywriting, where an AI and a human both wrote copy for uh, for a dress, and the robot copy was like uncanny valley. Okay, it kind of worked, but it seemed like it was somebody who didn't speak English trying to write English uh, versus the the natural uh, cadence of uh, of a native English writer. So that's, I guess that's what I see happening here is what a human still needs to like step in and just like observe and make sure everything is running smoothly. Uh, but then, yeah. You need to rein in the machine a little bit. Don't do this. Don't go there. I want to do something like this, but it does all the heavy lifting for you. You don't need to worry about bidding. You don't need to worry about mesh types and all that kind of stuff. It does all the heavy lifting. Now, a good analogy to give you is when we sit in the car and we put on the set now, even though, I mean, it's become a habit now, even though you know the way to go from A to B, but you still put the set now on. And then all of a sudden, the Google Maps or the sat nav is going to take you to a different direction and you'll swear at that uh, little box. Why are you taking me from there? It's straight. I know it goes straight. The machine knows that there is a traffic jam or an accident in front of us, which we don't. So that's why it's taking us through a diversion to reach our destination quicker. The same thing with this uh, smart bidding in the auction. The machine knows who they are up against, which we can't see, and how much to bid up, how much to bid, when not to bid. And sometimes it does go crazy with the cost per click going really high, and the client goes, oh, I don't want to pay 20 bucks a click. But it, they don't realize that paying 20 bucks a click does result in some really good conversions, which brings your cost per acquisition right down and gives you a better ROI on your ads. So why wouldn't you bid high all day long? And that's what happens with these smart uh, bidding campaigns. The smart campaigns will work really well once they have got the right data in it, we have fed the right data, and then we turn it on. So I tend not to switch off or switch on these smart campaigns right off the bat with zero data in it. We let it run manually, gather the data, then Google knows exactly who we are looking for, how much are we prepared to pay for a conversion, and then it's going to go out and get it for us. Uh, I'm, I'm going to move on to a, a different um, part of Google I want to ask you about. Not, not that I can't get going, but I feel like I've hit my quota for Terminator 2 references, and I'm just going to, if I do it again, I'm just going to. So um, another super unique one that I saw from your content is uh, Google Ads call recording. Now, again, I didn't realize this was happening, and I, I happen to think that there's lots of things going on in Google that would uh, surprise me. I think this would be a bit more focused on local businesses um, advertising locally, because I would I imagine that the further someone away, further away someone is, the more reluctant they are to dial somebody else's phone number, right? You know, uh, long distance charges and stuff like that. Um, so that was just my initial impression. But um, so yeah, so Google call, Ads call recording. What can we get out of this feature? Yeah, so the call ads you're referring to, right? So when instead of clicking through to your website the viewer or the, the, the person searching for that product or service makes a call. 
So a button on your ad will then dial out to that company. So if you are looking for, let's say, car insurance, we all hate filling in those long forms. We will just call them and then go through that questionnaire, which will take 10, 15 minutes, but at least we'll be talking and not typing. So the call ads work really well for any kind of lead generation business, be it local, national, or international. It really doesn't matter. Uh, but nationally, it works really well because it's in the same, um, not internationally, I beg your pardon, the na uh, on, on a national level. It really doesn't matter where you are. Um, somebody can call you from the other part of the country, and as long as you can service that client in that area, yeah, you can run call ads. It's the one of the most powerful ads you can have to generate leads because somebody is super interested. They are on the phone to you. The ball is in your court to convert them. It's not like somebody is filling a form. You got the form and then you are trying to get in touch with that client. They may be at work or not available or in a meeting. And you'll need to try 10 times to reach that person. And then most companies will give up. Okay, he's not responding. Whereas with a phone call, that person has called you to inquire about your services. So I would highly recommend that if you're in the business of lead generation, you should switch on a call only. Right. Yeah, that's something that uh, I, I guess didn't occur to me when I was um, uh, prepping the question. I just, I know a company like Walmart, for instance, and they're, they're all over the country or all over my country as well. So yeah, I mean, they, they run a call ad, I would call them and maybe I'm not getting through to like head office, but I'm getting through to a, a Walmart that's relative, but it's being an international company. Yeah. So, you know, websites like Walmart, Target, Amazons, they would run an e-commerce where people are clicking to buy online. But if you're selling a high ticket item where people will want to speak to somebody before they make that decision to buy from you, then the call ads will work really well for you. So like a car company, um, you won't just go online and buy a $50,000 There, are, there are a few people like Good. that, but it's a small small market. Yeah. Yeah. They I, do. I, they are, yeah, they haven't got, they've got more, well, more money than cents, I would say, because without looking at the car and yeah. test driving it, they buy it. And there are lots of companies now selling cars online where they, you buy it, they deliver to your home, and they have this 14-day you know, money back guarantee or whatever. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the market of like popular YouTubers who do that just as a challenge. Like, I just bought a car online. I didn't look at anything. Oh, let's see what happens. Yeah, nice life. <laughs> That's why, you know, so for those kind of uh, companies, car dealerships, call ads would work really well. We're, we're coming up on the uh, the final uh, stretch of this episode, and uh, I don't I don't, don't want to mix it up. I want us to um, I want to ask some other questions, just in some different avenues of what you're up to. Um, so this one, and this is one that I'm asked that I've been wrestling with in my mind. This is a, personally, it's about video format. So with my own process so far, um, by the time I had enough gear for uh, to be able to shoot in 1080p. Uh, and and I'm not and I don't just mean like you know as far as I can go with cell phone ads. I mean if I wanted to say shoot some long form content or even a, a web show or something along those lines. 
So by the time I had enough gear to shoot in 1080p, 4K basically took over. And I'm debating on waiting out 4K and then just making the jump to the next video format, which I think would be 8K or 16K if, you know, just based on the uh, uh, the naming conventions. Um, so in in the in your experience, um, I'd love to hear your recommendation on this. Like, do you recommend that people bite the bullet and just get on board with whatever is the most current gear? Or can people pace these things out on a generational basis? Yeah, I, I would say stay one one step behind. So if, if the 4K is the next best thing, shoot in 1080p. Once the 8K is released or is getting more popular, then start and move over to 4K. Because most of the devices, you can't see 4K. So it's no point in shooting. So I would say 1080p right now is more than enough. But get started. That is the key. Most people, most business owners are still shy of getting started. They have this um, uh, like a brick wall which they can't, you know, go over. But once you get over the fact that you don't like watching yourself or you don't like your voice, how you uh, come across on the video, you don't like listening to yourself. Well, don't do that because other people will be listening. It's not you sitting in front of the YouTube every day looking at your own videos. Other people. Let other people decide how good or bad the content is. It's the content which would be bad. It won't be you personally. So if they don't like uh, the videos, that means the content is not good. If the watch time is very low or they're skipping the ads, that means the hook is not there. Or if they're not taking that call to action which you want them to do, that means that the call to action is not strong enough. But just get started. Don't worry about this techie bits. What shall I do? Even if you want to start at 720p, get started. Um, another uh, another mix-up for you. Um, people, we haven't talked about Quora on this podcast at all. And I, 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 I so far, my my memory has managed to hold on to all of the, the key subjects that have been brought up. Um, so if, uh, if anybody listening to the show can actually call me out on this, let me know. I'll send you a, a $20 iTunes gift card. Tell me what episode we talked about Quora, because I'm certain that we didn't. So you you talk about how this is like a, one of the best kept secrets. Yeah, 50 interviews in, and it hasn't been brought up yet. So I would love to have you explain to our audience how important and useful Quora can be. Yeah, Quora is a gold mine, just like Reddit is. Um, so people go there and ask questions. And then there'll be lots of people who will reply to that question. And that's how you build up your authority. And the way I did that, and I'm not saying that I did this in a big way, but I started to do quite a bit on there is most people will reply in text format. Oh, I didn't even know you could. I would make a video and then embed the video in the reply. So my photograph of the custom image, my branding, and it would take up a huge space and all the replies would be in text format, whereas mine would be in video format. And that's how I used to do it. So I had one uh, of my guys, I would tell him, look, go and find me questions. His job was to just go and find me questions. How do I do Google ads? How do I write ads? Oh, I don't know how to do set this up, a video campaign and all that. And we have a spreadsheet and he will have all the links to those questions. And I would then go to that link. But that's the time consuming bit of finding those questions. 
So you can outsource that bit. Don't waste time um, trying to find it yourself. Anybody can do this. And all you do is then just shoot three to four minute videos and then keep putting them up. And before you know it, you've built up your authority on that. I really did not know that. I, I've participated in Quora a couple of times and not naming names, but a certain someone I know got into an argument about uh, the changes they were making to Ariel. And so I had to go in and uh, defend my friend. So, but the one, the one thing that happened to me on Quora is that I noticed I was having a hard time replying to the replies or I couldn't find like a direct reply button. I don't know if I'm just like crazy and I didn't quite look at it, but it looked to me like Quora is designed specifically so that everybody answers the questions of the, sorry, everybody answers the question and is everybody responding to the original post. But I don't think Quora has much in the way of like back and forth between the people answering the, the questions themselves. I think everybody just responds to the first person. No, you can't reply to a, like in Facebook, you would reply to a comment on the main uh, thread. So Cora would just be kind of like replying to the main question. But you can upvote. Uh, is it upvote? No, you can like um, on other people's reply on there as well. And you can join the conversation in there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so next one for you. Uh, you talk about a, uh, a daily marketing hustle. This is also a concept that I, I, I think the definition might have come up in previous episodes, but certainly the term itself hasn't. Um, so what's daily marketing hustle and can you share your version of it with us? Yeah. So how, how often do you go out and reach out to your audience, right? And the way we do this is we upload at least two to three pieces of content right now. And going forward in 2021, we are going to increase it to maybe four or five pieces of content. So we've got three different types of uh, videos. One is the live stream, which we do every weekday on YouTube. And we're now going on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. And we have worked out a hack on Instagram as well as to how we can live stream just, I mean, you can live stream on Instagram, but we want to show the setup as well as one camera on me. So using two mobile phones, we worked out a way of how to, live stream without the echo, the sound echoing from multiple devices and all that. So we're trying to do that and put, put the content out on various um, channels. So we've got the 30 minutes. So each live stream is around 30 minutes. Then we repurpose part of it of about five to eight minutes long and repurpose it at a later date. And then we have our six less than 60 second short videos. So vertical, square, um, and horizontal format. So this is the type of uh, hustle which we are doing is to put out content on a daily basis. Once a week or once a month is not enough. Uh, I don't believe so um, in this day and age when there's so much noise out there that you got to start shouting from the rooftops as well. And the more you go out and put your content, the more likelihood you're going to get found and yeah and that speaks to what i was saying earlier about my um uh, about the youtuber that i you know that i follow he puts content out every day and the algorithm understands that i want to uh watch his content for breakfast he skips a day okay whatever but if he were if he if he wasn't doing that consistency i wouldn't have that ritual 
where I can look forward to that each and every day. And then I can uh, depend on that each and every day. And what that does is it creates this, this sense of um, solidity in my own ritual. The difference between things I know are going to happen tomorrow versus the things I don't. I do like a solid sense of things that I know are going to be there. So I think to your point, your, your followers and the people you will continue to uh, reach out to who also become followers, they're expecting that as well. Um, but on the on the flip side of that, that also, I think, uh, presents some unique challenges too. So how do you devise what content you're going to put out on a, on a regular basis? How do you, do you do you get together like once a month and do a plan or is it just like whatever you're up to in the day? So, yeah. Yeah, so our content marketing team now has got eight of us from planning, creating, editing, shooting, uh, uploading, syndicating, and we have a, a pretty good workflow where everybody knows their things to do, when to do it, and so on. And it just moves in a very, it's kind of like a McDonald's, you know, the hamburger goes from one, uh, one stage to the other uh, station and so on. And these is how our pieces of content goes from, you know, transcribing, graphic design, uh, video editing, and so on. So initially, I used to do everything myself when I started video marketing very seriously in January 2018. It used to take me hours just to do one video, at least four to five hours by the time I've shot it and I was really bad at it. I would reshoot, reshoot multiple times, editing, transcribing, uploading. And by the time I finished one video, I'd be like, oh, thank God it's done. And before you know it, time to shoot the next one. So slowly, slowly, you know, I thought I've got to systemize this so that I can scale it. Now we have the systems, the processes in place to really scale it. Because what's happening now is every time we upload a video on YouTube, it gets ranked in Google as well for that keyword. So you may have noticed on the Google page one, when you search for a particular topic or a subject, you get this three-pack videos, but now they are putting four-pack. That means instead of showing three videos on Google page one, Google is showing four videos on page one. What this tells you is Google is paying even more emphasis on video format. Otherwise, why would they increase it from three to four? Now, most of my competitors aren't putting those kind of videos uh, with the consistency which we are putting. So out of the four, I quite often find three of the videos are mine. Now, that is, you know, music to anybody's ears to get three links on Google page one. Effortlessly, SEO is extremely hard to go on Google page one. I need to beat companies like HubSpot, WordStream, support.google.com, and many other high authority websites. I can't do that. But in video, they can't beat me because they are not putting up that kind of the quality, not the quality, but the, the, the frequency. And now what's happened is YouTube and Google knows that I keep on putting up content about Google Ads, Google Ads, Google Ads. They know that, okay, when I'm, I'm putting up this content, it's relevant, it's engaging, people like it, they watch it, they view it. And then my videos. So we've got about, I would say, 350 keywords where our videos are getting ranked on Google page one. I want to keep on 
accelerating this process to thousands of keywords. So by the time some one of my, any of my competitors start to even want to compete with me, I'll be far ahead of the game. Well, I have to say your your expertise is uh, something to be admired, and uh, I, I I have no doubt that the strategy is effective because it's well already working, and so it's just continuous uh, growth from there. Um, you know, the the last. Well, the, the, aside from the traditional last question, the last question I wanted to ask you, I think you just answered it. I'm just going to tell you what the question was, just in case it actually ends up being a different answer. But it's a quote from your from your Twitter, uh, which is, your mountain may be harder to climb, but, oh, the view. The view is divine. So I'm listening to what you're saying, and I think, I think that's the mountain that you climbed. Am I, am I right? Or would you say that there, I was going to ask you, like, what's been your mountain to climb? And I feel like that actually might be it. Yeah, we're still climbing the mountain and we're quite high up the mountain. So we're not right at the base camp. Yeah, you're not in the gift shop. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we're quite high up in the mountain and for someone to catch us up, it will take a, a monumental effort now to keep pace because we're not stopping. Since the lockdown in March this year, we tripled down our content marketing. We've gone live stream every single day except a few days when we had no internet or some technical glitches and so on. Every weekday we are putting up and we continue uh, to do so in the near future. And this is our ritual now. You know, if it's not four o'clock, we don't go live. Joseph, I'm telling you, I start to get messages on WhatsApp, on Skype. Oh, you're not going live today? So they expect us to go live. But sometimes I'm a bit late. I bet you they're worried too. Like, are you okay? Is everything all right? I have. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm trying to get online because my internet is playing up. I can't go live. And I've got all these messages pinging up on my iPad and phone and all that. So it is kind of like they expect and they, some of them are kind of like regulars. They will be there at four o'clock every day, no matter what. And this is the kind of loyalty uh, you build up with your audience because they they like and they love what we put up. That's why they are here because time is precious for everybody. Well, on that note, um, you've given us a lot of your time today, and I and I'm very grateful. And I'm gonna definitely gonna when I get I, I review every episode before it goes live, so I'm looking forward to reviewing this and just like uh, letting what I've observed today be reabsorbed. And uh, it, it amazes me how. Each time I get to talk to a new guest, uh, there's just so much more that I don't understand and there's so much more to learn. So uh, so thank you for that. Uh, I, I know my guests have got, I'm oh, sorry, I know our audience has also got a lot to take away from today. Our last question to you is always a chance to deliver any parting wisdom, just in case there was a, an answer you wanted to give for a question I didn't ask. So anything along those lines, feel free and then let us know how to reach out and how to get in touch with you. Sure. I mean... All I would say to anyone listening to this is, if you haven't started video marketing, um, you'll be kicking yourself that you didn't start when you could have. Because I do the same thing to myself. I wish I had started six, seven years ago. But I can't change the past, and I can't change the future, and this is what we are doing is get started. This is the best marketing tool anyone has. Um, which will help them to take their brand to the next level, generate more leads or sales, and also look at 
companies like Amazon, they are the world leaders. Have you noticed now they've started to put videos on the shopping cart, on the checkout pages, where they used to have five or six photos only. Next time, go on there and you will start to see videos on there. That will tell you that if you, even if you're an e-commerce store, you've got a Shopify store, how important a video is to take that conversion level uh, high. With regards to reaching us and me, uh, our website is the best place, www.sfdigital.co.uk. All our details are on there. Fantastic. Uh, Uzair Karawala, uh, thank you once more for your time. And uh, to our audience, you guys know what to do, so I will uh, leave it in to your best judgment. Take care, and we'll check in soon. Thanks for listening. You might have found this show on many number of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you, so whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to Debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next.